Father in heaven, we are thrilled that even though there's a whole bunch of us in this room, that we can come to the garden alone. Lord, as we think about gardens, I pray that the Holy Spirit, who created the first garden and who inspires every garden since, will be present, and especially that we can see that the garden that our eyes behold is merely a symbol of the work that you want to do in our heart. And I ask, Lord, that you will speak to us as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, <clears throat> I love that song, the I Come to the Garden Alone. Thank you so much for that. We've been to Tennessee a few times, and every time I come, I'm inspired by how beautiful it is. You have to remember that I live in the desert, and um, it's refreshing to see trees and rivers that are bigger than six inches wide and last longer than the monsoon season. And um, it's nice to see greenery everywhere. But every time I think about making Tennessee or someplace like that in my home, I remember that the reason it's green is the reason why I live in Arizona. <laughs> I... Um, I love the sunshine, and uh, it's, it's really nice to be able to, to have both experiences, but I do, I do enjoy seeing the beauty. You know, it was a little bit disconcerting when John was talking earlier and uh, was describing me as an old-timer. Um, I am reminded of that every time I look in the mirror, but... but I just don't think I'm that old yet, but <laughs> the, the nice thing is, is that when you garden, it doesn't matter what your biological age is because you still can be very young. You know, um, I'm really thrilled that this whole uh, Adventist agriculture convention association got put together. Adventists should own agriculture. We are Seventh-day Adventists, and the seventh day means it's the sign of the completion of the creation of the Garden of Eden. Revelation 14, the special truth for the Seventh-day Adventist church is fear God, give glory to him, and worship him who made the earth. All of those three angels' messages, all of what we stand for, is really encapsulated in agriculture. Now that's not exactly what, what, um, what I'm talking about. And yet it is exactly what I'm talking about. But before I go any further, I want to draw attention to this picture right here. That is my second daughter and my oldest granddaughter. 
And the exciting thing is that they are watching right now as we speak because of the marvels of technology that this is live streaming. And uh, I want to say hi to Kimberly and Arisia and Riella and Isaiah, even though he's too young to know anything about that. He's only a few weeks old. But uh, it is a privilege to be able to raise a family on a farm. Amen. And those of you who have not done so yet, I certainly hope that this conference will help you as a milestone on that journey to be at least a part-time farmer. You know, you ask the question, why are we doing this? I'd like to, I'd like to share a thought that um, I haven't shared with very many people before. Genesis 4, 16 and 17. You ever, have you ever uh, noticed those two verses and thought about the implication of that? Cain went out from the Lord's presence, lived in the land of Nod, and then, at that time, was building a city and named it after his son. Now, there are doubtless going to be people that will come to me after this and say, you know, you're really stretching that verse with what I'm going to be saying. But I don't think I am. Now, this is what I believe this verse implies. There is a place where God's presence is. Now, people will come to me and say, you know, what he did was leave the Lord in his mind. But then why did he go move to the land of Nod? He knew that where he was had too many connections to God. So he wanted to go where he wasn't going to be reminded about God every time he saw the Garden of Eden and every time that he was raising his crops. The second thing this verse implies is that cities were developed as a means to escape from the presence of God. Now, when we think about the implication of that, I think we can do a little reverse engineering and realize that if you want to get back in the presence of God, we can take these two steps backwards. We're going to have to escape the city if we want to get into the presence of God. But there's a really interesting question to me, and that is, why did Cain build a city? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, there was no such thing as a city. He invented it. It wasn't like today where 80% where of, of Americans grow up in urban areas, and so that's kind of what you're used to. With Cain, there was no city. He dreamed it up in his mind under inspiration of supernatural forces, but why did he want to make a city? You know, I like this passage from Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 311, and it says, the carnal mind, what kind of mind did Cain have? A carnal mind. A carnal mind craves conformity and similarity. Now, going back to Cain's time, 
it was a little bit different because there wasn't a world to conform to. But the principle was still the same. Cain was craving conformity and similarity. You know why? Because when you know that you're when you know that you are not in harmony with the law of God, where do you look for support and security? What everybody else is doing. You see, if if I feel criticized, I want to go and find other people who will say to me, you're okay. The idea behind a city was to get people close together so that we could have similarity and conformity. That we could have a group of people who thought that we were all okay being away from the presence of God. I'm going to continue that same paragraph says that the customs and practices in the cities unfit the minds of youth, this is for today, for the entrance of what? Truth. Now, have you ever thought that simply living in the city, it isn't that you're getting exposed, it, is, it includes that, but it isn't simply that you're getting exposed to wickedness. There is something about city living that unfits your mind for the entrance of truth. And I think it goes back to this thing right here. You see, when you're in a group of people and you are carnally minded, which we all are born that way, we are going to want to be similar and we're going to want to conform to the same pattern. Now what does truth require of us? To not conform. Be you not conformed to this world, but transformed. You see, there's something intrinsic in living in a, with a group of people. And we're not talking, you don't have to have a million to experience this. Anytime you've got even a small town, you are still, maybe to a little lesser degree, but you are still, exert, you are still having influences exerted on you to conform and to be similar. And that very situation unfits your mind to have truth enter. Now, um, that's interesting. But I'm going to continue right the very next words after this. Okay? The customs and practices in the cities unfit the minds of the youth for the entrance of truth. Do you know what she says next? Is there anybody here who's, who's got a, a, a photographic memory and has Fundamentals of Christian Education, Chapter 41, Committed to Memory? Okay. Yes. You know... I would encourage everybody to read chapter 41, especially if you're a parent. There's some stuff in there that is, that is very powerful, not just for agriculture, but for the whole uh, aspect of parenting. Anyway, the very next words are the liquor drinking. 
the smoking, the gambling, the horse racing, and the theater going. Now that's what we would expect Ellen White to talk about when she talks about the city, right? These are the bad things that you're going to be induced to conform to. You notice at the bottom of that, that sentence, I have three dots. She doesn't end there. The very next words are, the great importance placed upon holidays. The great importance placed upon holidays. She puts that in the same string of things as drinking, smoking, gambling, and horse racing, and the great importance placed upon holidays are all a species of idolatry, a sacrifice upon idol worship, on idol altars, sorry. Then she continues, if people conscientiously attend to their lawful business upon the holidays, they're regarded as mean-spirited. In other words, if you are not if you are not taking the day off, have you ever had people say, you know what, you got to have some days off. you got to, okay? And if you don't, you're regarded as mean-spirited and unpatriotic. And she says, the Lord cannot be served this way. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because I'm wanting to make a contrast between when you look at the, in Genesis, we see the creation story. We see how God made man, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But you also see how, how, the, how sin began and the first person who basically decided to exit himself from God and exile himself from God, how he took everything. And you see, with that whole line, that has continued basically unbroken, unfortunately, clear to the present day. You see the cities. You see all of the things that are there. And I want to particularly highlight again that what, what um, Cain was attempting to do was to create conformity and similarity because that's what he craved. And all carnal-minded people since then crave that. And in addition to simply wanting that, the reason why the holiday thing is thrown in there is because cities make it easier. See, the carnal mind craves ease. Not just sitting on your, on your easy chair, but it's not pleasant to confront aspects of our character that we realize need changed. It's not easy to confront the fact that it's going to be a challenge to become not just a person who doesn't do bad things. A dead person doesn't do bad things. We were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Work takes, by definition, energy. In fact, if you take physics, we understand that work is 
the measure of, or as, and be careful how I say that, I'm sure there's somebody in physics here. Okay, work is the measure of the expenditure of energy. And energy, the expenditure of energy, is, is the basis for the accomplishment of work. Okay, so God created man to, to accomplish things, to be all that he could be. And Cain, when he left the garden and went to the city, he began to build the city for the purpose of making it easier so that we wouldn't have to have so many difficulties. It wouldn't be so hard to do everything. So there could be more holidays, more days off, if you will. Now, in contrast with that, I want to highlight God's plan. This is Genesis 2. While there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew breath into his nostrils and the human came to life. Okay? We came from fertile topsoil. That's kind of an interesting thought when you think about it. Okay? But if you continue, it says, The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden. What does the word to mean? For the purpose of, in order to, okay? God created man from the fertile topsoil because he needed someone to farm Eden, the garden, and to take care of it. So here's the sequence of events. God planted a garden in Eden. The garden needed to be taken care of. So... God created man from the earth and put him in the garden to farm it and take care of it. We, as carnally minded people, like to think that God created the earth for our benefit. And that's true. But this passage says that God created man for the benefit of the earth. He made all of those trees and flowers and, and, and vines and fruit-bearing vegetables and everything. And they would, not, they would not achieve their potential without some intelligent being to guide them. To sow them where they should be sown. To train them in the way they should be trained so that they aren't just haphazardly doing their thing. So that they can bring honor to the God who created all of these plants and animals by showing what God's plan, what God's thinking was, what his plan could accomplish. It couldn't do that if left to itself. So he needed an intelligent being to take care of the garden. To intelligently take care of the garden. So, you have man. And uh, man was created to contribute to the garden. And guess what? That garden contributes to man. 
That's the way that God set it up. You plant the seed, you invest the energy, you design the garden, you, you study it, and you determine what it needs to be the most productive, and that garden yields fruit for you to eat, but more. This is, I think, one of the, one of the really fundamental uh, uh, principles from Desire of Ages. It says, sin has marred God's perfect work, yet his handwriting remains. There's nothing save the selfish heart of man that lives to itself. There's no leaf of the forest or lowly blade of grass but has its ministry. Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life without which neither man nor animal could live. What is that element of life? Oxygen. Okay? And in turn, man and animal minister to the life of tree and shrub and leaf. Okay? So let's put this back into the into the uh, little circle that we put here. The, you can see there the plants and, and uh, man both have a role to play. Man takes care of the garden and the garden takes care of man. I want to continue that, that uh, paragraph I was reading before. It says, turning from all these lesser representations, we behold God and Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. In these words is set forth a great principle, which is the law of life. Now, when we think of the law of life, what do we as Seventh-day Adventists call the law of life? The Ten Commandments. Okay? The Ten Commandments is not just those ten principles it is an underlying law of life. And it's listed right here. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. And thus through Christ, this circle of beneficence or blessing is complete, representing the character of the great giver, comma, that's in a positive, for those of you with English grammar, the law of life, okay? The Ten Commandments are not just ten things you're supposed to do or not do. The Ten Commandments are an expression of this basic idea that you are to take to give. The plants take care from man and give back that element of life without which we could not live and the food that we need to eat, and more. So you see this here, this circle right here, she calls it the circle of beneficence, or the circle of blessing, or the circle of love, or the circle of the law, is what it's all about. Now, this, this is a, a, um, a verse from Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. With the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And uh, I call that the packed cup principle. Because that's what it says, the measure. And I think of, of um, measures as cups or things that I think of it from the kitchen. My mother was a a real 
is a, a, um, an amazing chef, baker. And so I grew up with lots of cups. And um, this principle that Jesus outlined in Luke chapter 6 is that, that you give and what? It will be given to you. The same measure that you give will be measured back to you. So you can decide how much you want to get. Okay? How much do you want to get? As much as you want to give. See, if I have a one teaspoon measure and that's how much I give, how much am I going to get? One teaspoon packed and flowing over. But that's it. One teaspoon. If I stretch a little bit and I go to a cup, what am I going to give? A cup. And what am I going to get back? A cup packed down, running over, but still a cup. If you start going into those big things that they use in commercial kitchens, right? That's what you're going to get back. Now, we all can really get the idea of getting big blessings back. We like the whole idea of good measure, pressed down, packed down, and overflowing. But that measure that we get is the measure that we give. That is the law of God. You give, and it's given back to you, with a little addition. What that tells me is that if you're going to, if you go back to this whole thing about the garden, how much you give to your garden is how much your garden's going to give to you. Those who give sparingly are going to receive sparingly. There's no such thing as a green thumb. Adam was not created with a green thumb and neither was Eve. What they were created with was a brain and muscles and the principle planted on their heart that you give and it will be given back to you. In our society today, we want to get all we can get and give as sparingly as we can. And we reverse that. We give as, as richly as it's possible for us to give. And God packs that cup back. Okay? Now, I want to... Some of you may have seen some of this before, but... I want to take this principle... And, of course, we think... Right away, okay, I can give, I can grow a large garden and then I'll get a large amount back. But I don't think that that's what it's talking about. You can get a large amount back from a small garden if you give intelligently. Now, you know, there are 
several things here, and I'm not going to be able to address them all, but I want to just highlight a few because I think that there's some interesting points. Okay? Benefit of gardening, you get enhanced health. Now, that's not complicated to see. Okay? A better performing brain. Improved mental health, stress relief, safe food, and spiritual understanding. Now, I'm not going to cover all of these because we don't have time. But I want to take the first one, and I want to um, just spend a brief moment on it. This is a statement, again, from Fundamentals of Christian Education, again from the chapter 41. I'm going to try to sell people on reading that chapter. Okay? Occupations requiring sedentary habits are the ones most desirable in today's society. Now, it's not what it says in Fundamentals of Christian Education, but the reason she says what she says there is because that is what I just said is the truth. Okay? People like jobs where you don't have to put out a lot of energy. There's a great TED Talk. For those of you who watch TED Talks, there's a great TED Talk on sitting disease. Scientists are coming to the conclusion that today, sitting is the new smoking. I want you to think about that. God did not design man to sit on a chair. God designed man to work in the garden to use all of the muscle groups. Now it says here that occupations requiring sedentary habits are what? The most, what's that word? Dangerous. dangerous. Now when I think of danger, I might think of something a little different than you. I can tell you my wife, when she thinks of danger, um, she thinks of heights. We were on uh, first vacation we had taken for a while and went for a few days to Puerto Rico last December, and uh, we took our youngest daughter with us who has a very strong adventure streak. Not sure where she got that gene from, but she really wanted to do zip lining and some other things, so my wife decided that she would stretch herself and do that. And uh, we went with a group of 12 uh, zip lining. And um, I think they felt like they got more than their money's worth because she was along. Everybody was highly entertained by how terrified my wife was about the danger of going on this tiny little cable suspended 100 feet from the ground there with nothing but a little, a little thin strap that could easily tear and these giant trees could fall over. There's all kinds of things that could go wrong. Okay? Every one of us has a concept of danger. But here, we're told that one of the most dangerous things you can do is to sit on a chair. Now, do I see anything ironic right now? Adventists have really emphasized especially certain groups of Adventists, have really emphasized health reform. 
And unfortunately, our idea of health reform is often limited to what you put in your mouth while you're sitting on your chair at the table. <laughs> Not only is there an issue with sitting disease, but it says that sedentary occupations take men away from the open air and sunshine. Now I'm going to say something here because I know there are no dermatologists in this room. I'm waiting for somebody to acknowledge that I'm wrong. Okay, um, sunshine has gotten a really bad rap. And I have researched this extensively in the Spirit of Prophecy, and she comes out really strong saying, dispose of things that shield your skin from the sun, which is not conventional medicine today. There is support coming out for that position. They just did a study recently of two large groups of women in Sweden. Those who, who did a lot of sunbathing and those who stayed out of the sun or put sunscreen on. And do you know what the results were? It wasn't statistically significant. It was something like 50% higher death rate than the people who stayed out of the sunshine. So, don't want to uh, talk too much about that, but, but um, not only is there an issue with sitting, but there's an issue with not being in the open air and not having sunshine, and then, of course, you have the, the issue of, of the inactivity, okay? going to move on to this one, and I think that there's something here that's going to interest every farmer, not necessarily in a positive way. Um, they have only recently discovered that there's a bacteria that is widely distributed in the soil called Mycobacterium vaccae, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with that particular bacteria, but what's interesting is that they have discovered that that bacteria actually raises your IQ. I have some for sale at the back of the room. <laughs> it's true. I'm sure that somebody here would sell me some soil that I could mark up for a profit because it's in all the soil that you are going to be putting your hands in. And the interesting thing is, is that that bacteria does you benefit by touching it and by eating it. Now, have you ever wondered why little children insist on eating dirt? And I know mothers try really hard to keep that from happening, but the fact is your kid is raising its IQ, which it may be why mothers don't want that to happen because I know as a parent it's hard enough having kids that think they're smarter than you. But notice here in this particular study 
And mice exposed to this bacteria were able to negotiate through a maze twice as fast as those in the control group. Now, there's, um, there's some more that I want to say about Mycobacterium vacae, but I'm going to wait on that. I'm going to read this statement right here. What does that say? As we have become more, translate that next word, city living. As we have become more urbanized, we have less contact with an organism that may be actually very useful. If you think about it, when we look at our history, we spent a lot of time in agriculture where we had a lot of contact with the soil. It's only been in the last hundred years or so that we've become more urbanized and are eating our foods in a different way. This is from the general, 110th General Meeting of the American Society for Microbiology in 2010. Scientists are beginning to discover that there is a, that there is a possible connection to the change in our lifestyle, not just in the way that we often think about with, well, you know, we, we eat more refined foods and we don't exercise as much, but we don't have as much contact with the soil, and that is having a, a significant negative influence on our bodies, on our brains, and on our spirits. Now, this is my second granddaughter. <laughs> now, this was when they lived in Arizona. They moved to Michigan, and uh, she doesn't dress like that, especially not at this time of year. But the, um, you notice she just absolutely loved wallowing around in the dirt. And um, there are probably times when, when my wife as a good grandmother would have been horrified to see that. But unfortunately, my wife was a farmer, so she really, really liked that. Discover Magazine. Is dirt the new Prozac? Okay? Now, I didn't put the quotation in here, but from a scientific journal... And, and yes, when I look at scientific journals, they're peer-reviewed scientific journals, okay? They stated that the results, and this is all relatively new research, mostly in the last five years, that, that this particular bacteria is as effective as antidepressants in combating depression. Now that's pretty significant. As effective. Now I'm going to I'm going to tell you something that was very surprising to me and that was that I was reading in the Spirit of Prophecy. I had gone up to to um, Auburn to give a little talk on agriculture and uh, stayed with a, a um, psychologist. And that's always an interesting thing to do. So we were having a discussion. And he told me that he would like me to prove 
my assertion that agriculture would be a good thing to involve patients in that had you know, mental health issues. So I went back and I researched everything I could find in the spirit of prophecy. And in, to my surprise, I discovered that she stated explicitly that the reason the Battle Creek Sanitarium was burned down by supernatural forces was because they wouldn't move to the country for the purpose of involving agriculture for the patients. Now to me, if God's willing to take his assets, now you read the Spirit of Prophecy, you find out that, that God puts a lot of, a lot of uh, value on his assets. And he says, you know what? I'm willing to destroy that sanitarium, that hospital. Because it's not going to do what it needs to do as long as it does not have agriculture as part of the healing modality. Now, to me, that's powerful. You start reading what she says about the influence of the influence of working the soil and the plants on, on, um, on your mental health, etc. And it's quite profound. Going to um, quote one particular statement here. This is from Manuscript 13, which is also recorded in Councils and Diets and Foods. It says, families and institutions should learn to do more in the cultivation and improvement of land. Now notice that next sentence, if people only knew. Now whenever I hear that statement, what does that imply? If you only knew. There's something really amazing, and if you only knew. If you only knew that there was a million dollars in the bank with your name on it, and it's just really unfortunate that you're in ignorance. If you only knew the value of the products of the ground which the earth brings forth in their season, more diligent efforts would be made to cultivate the soil. All should be acquainted with the special value of fruits and vegetables fresh from the orchard and garden. Not just the special value of fruits and vegetables, but the special value of fruits and vegetables fresh from the garden. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the fruits and vegetables that you grow in the garden, what have they been in contact with? The soil. And when you look at, see, we don't know very much about microbiology. Just a recent discovery that we as humans are 90% bacteria and 10% human. Did you know that? That is in Scientific American. That's not a joke. Okay? We are 90% bacteria and 10% human. So when you look at me, don't you dare think of putting bleach on me because I might disappear. <laughs> the fact is that, that bacteria, we know very little about what it really will do. I remember back in the 70s and 80s, you know, when we were talking, well, particularly in the 70s and before, when we were talking about what was really important in health you know, proteins and all the essential amino acids and the fatty acids and the vitamins and the minerals. And then somebody discovered that there were these things called phytonutrients. There's more to the banana, there's more to the carrot than simply the carbohydrates, the proteins, the fats, etc. 
and the vitamins and minerals. We discovered, and since that time, there's been an explosion of knowledge about what all is involved in this, in this package that we call fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, we have only discovered, and it was an accidental discovery. A doctor was working on making injections of Mycobacterium bacchae and discovered some unusual results. So now they've been studying this particular bacteria. But there's lots of different bacteria. And we don't know very much about that one either. But what they have discovered is that because it contaminates the fruits and vegetables that you're eating, if you eat it right fresh from the garden, you are ingesting those bacteria. And rather than trying to wash them off and disinfect them, you're going to suffer depression as the result of that if you do. You get all this benefit from, from eating that fresh. Okay. Now, this is, a, this is an, interesting, an interesting study in Norway. People who are depressed with, diagnosed with depression, persistent low mood, or bipolar 2 disorder, they spend six hours a week growing flowers and vegetables. 72% experienced significant improvements in their mental health and the benefit was still being experienced three months after the study ended. Okay? Now, um, for a nervous, gloomy, feeble patients, outdoor work is invaluable. Let them have flower beds to care for and the use of rake and hoe and spade, they will find relief from many of their maladies. Now, I'm going to tell you some new, new study that came out. That particular bacteria will aid in rheumatoid arthritis and some other things. So, God knew about the bacteria they'd put in there. And he's saying here, you'll find relief from many of your maladies if you'll get involved in gardening. Now, this is very encouraging to me, and that's why I could say that if you are gardening, you'll still stay younger. Look at this. Two separate studies followed people in their 60s and 70s for up to 16 years, and they found, respectively, that those who garden regularly had a 36% and 47% lower risk of dementia. That means those who are in their 60s had a 36% lower risk, and those who are in their 70s had a 47% lower risk of dementia than non-gardeners, even when a range of other health factors were taken into effect. So you will stay sharper in your mind and more youthful the more you garden. This one here, again from the Spirit of Prophecy, the constant contact with the mystery of life and the loveliness of nature as well as the tenderness called forth in ministering to these beautiful objects of God's creation tend to quicken the mind. How did she know that? Tend to quicken the mind and refine and elevate the character. You see, going back to this packed cup principle, the more you are willing to invest, you're going to eat. How are you going to eat? Are you going to invest the least possible that you can? Go to, go to whatever grocery store that you can to buy your food with the with least amount of effort? What are you going to get back? 
You're going to get the teaspoon back. You're going to get the cup back. Those who are willing to put the effort, which is why she said, if you only knew the blessings that you would get back, you would be willing to put out more diligent effort. The more you give, the more you will receive. The pack cup principle, just remember that. You will not get all these benefits that you can get if you aren't willing to give a lot. Okay? Now, one of the other benefits is stress relief. Now, this is... Um, won't spend a lot of time with this one, but it says, after completing a stressful task, two groups of people had two different options. You could either go in, kick back on the couch and read, which is what your natural inclination is to do, right? Or you could go out and garden. And those who went out and gardened reported being in a better mood and had lower levels of stress hormones. I think anybody who's a farmer knows that that's probably the case. Unless it's coming time to pay the bills, then it's better to go out and garden too. <laughs> would like to, um, on that note, how do you think that they measured the stress levels on mice? They began, they, they, they discovered that these bacteria help reduce the stress levels on mice. How do you think they figured that out? It's really funny. They dropped them in, in a cup of water or a bucket of water. Now, how does that tell you whether they're stressed or not? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I can never figure out how scientists figure out how to do some of their studies. This is the, this is the theory and it's been documented by studying the, the, uh, the, the stress chemicals, et cetera, et cetera, in the, in the mouse. But what they discovered is that the more relaxed you are, the longer you will keep trying to keep from drowning if you're a mouse. Okay? So you'll keep churning in that water longer if your stress levels are lower. So they feed them the, this bacteria, and they'll put them in the water bucket, and they'll put, take another mouse and put it in another water bucket, and they will measure the amount of time that they spend trying to swim to survive. Okay? And they compare these two different groups, the one that has this bacteria and the one that doesn't, and they discovered that across the board, if they've been exposed to this bacteria, they'll swim longer. It improves their mood and gives them the, it gives them hope. <laughs> now I want to ask you something. What are farmers renowned for? Hope. You know, farmers will keep spinning in that water when they should have drowned a long time ago. <laughs> it might be that because we put our hands in the dirt, we have more optimism and more hope, and so we keep doing all these stupid things that we do. Okay? Yes, Dan. The, the um, interesting thing is that not only does farming think about it, 
Farming requires intelligence to solve problems. And working in the soil gives you enhanced intelligence. Working in the soil requires hope. And working in the soil increases your level of hope. You know, it's going back to this, this, this principle that's the law of God. God intended for us to, to minister to the garden, and the garden would minister to us. It's the principle of where there's need, God provides what's needed for that need. You know, it's... it's um, I think it's worth just covering a little bit of this. You know, we were on the plane flying here this morning, and my wife discovers a, uh, a report about GMO soybeans. Now, those of you who read the scientific literature will see that science says that there is no health harm in genetically modified foods. Now, whether that's true or not, this particular report was highlighting the fact that when Monsanto turned in their studies, guess what soybeans they actually reported? Yes, they were genetically modified soybeans, but they were genetically modified soybeans that they didn't spray any Roundup on. So when they actually evaluate the soybeans that were the ones that would actually be harvested from the field, they had crazy high levels of all these other things in there, the pesticides and so on. You know, you don't know what you're eating unless you grow it yourself. And... Um, Anybody who's been at my farm or around me has probably seen some of these statistics here multiple times. So, but, you know, there's a lot of antibiotics that are used in agriculture. Now, that's, of course, on the animal agriculture. But guess what comes out of the cow or the pig or the chicken? The fertilizer that you put on the field, in your garden. And if it happens to come from animals that have been fed these antibiotics, those antibiotics go right through that animal and they're in the excrement. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that those are taken up by the plants when they're put on the field. And um, when you look here, there's 28 million pounds of, of uh, antibiotics that are, that are used in the United States, and that's the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in America taking a prescription for azithromycin every two days. Now, this one just 
points out that um, new research is showing that people might even be ingesting antibiotics from organic produce because organic produce growers can use manure from, from CAFOs or con concentrated animal feeding operations. And uh, you can see that from this one here that that is actually taken up by the plants. Um, and uh, MRSA, MRSA, uh, more people die from that than AIDS. That isn't a public health crisis. I don't know what it is. And it's pretty widespread. 49% of hogs and 45% of farm workers had a new strain of MRSA. And um, nearly half of the meat and poultry samples that they did in a nationwide study of meat taken from grocery stores uh, had, were contaminated with Staphylococcus aureus. And more than half of those bacteria were resistant to at least three classes of antibiotics. Now, that's just scientific data, right? This is some really, some really um, practical applications of that. Scientists believe that antibiotics may have contributed to the explosive rise in asthma and allergies over the last 20 years. When I was a kid, and yes, that was a long, long time ago. I only knew one person in my entire growing up life that had asthma. It was my cousin. And it was like, that's weird. What's wrong with you? Now, asthma and allergies are really widespread. And um, they also believe, which I don't have it in, in that study in here, that, uh, that it is directly tied as a causative factor in obesity and autoimmune disorders. So this is not just something weird. You know, I like to tell this story. Um, Johns Hopkins University, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, joined with Arizona State University to investigate the use of the banned antibiotic fluoroquinolone. Now, this was a very important thing for them to explore because they, there are so many antibiotics that are becoming uh, that the bacteria are becoming resistant to. So there was this one particular antibiotic, fluoroquinolone, that they banned from any use in agriculture because they wanted to have it as a last line of defense. But resistance to that antibiotic was beginning to show up and they suspected that people were cheating in the farming community. So they decided to investigate that, but they knew they couldn't just ask. And um, without a court order, they certainly couldn't get in and investigate the farms. So they came up with a really clever way of, of doing that. What you eat goes into your hair. And if you're a chicken, what you eat goes into your feathers. 
So they collected samples from chicken feathers all across the country. And then they went to a lab and said, we'd like you to look at these chicken feathers and see if there is any fluoroquinolone. Well, it just happened to be that the labs, the, the, um, the test for fluoroquinolone, they also ran with a battery of tests for other things. So they said, well, do you want us to check for these other things too because it's part of the package? So they said, sure, why not? So this is what they, this is what they found. Ten of the twelve samples contain caffeine, Tylenol, Benadryl, and Prozac. Okay. What they discovered is that they were feeding the chickens caffeine so that they would stay awake and eat more. <laughs> Grow faster, get fatter. Makes you wonder if that's not what happens to humans too. Then, because these chickens are in concentrated areas, think cities, what was happening to the chickens from all that caffeine? They were getting fidgety and grumpy with each other, right? So then they had to give them Prozac to improve their mood and Benadryl and Tylenol to calm them down. And those of you who aren't vegetarians might be eating that. Sobering thought. All samples had between two and ten different antibiotics, and eight of the twelve samples contained the banned antibiotic fluoroquinolone. And the fluoroquinolone level in the feathers was high enough to induce resistance in bacteria right at the level in the feathers. So, you know, I hope that I haven't, in, in covering some of these different things, that I haven't lost the connection in your mind with where we started. You know, when we have a, at our farm, we encourage our employees, most of whom are not um, members of our faith, we encourage them to be interested in health. In fact, we pay them to watch things like Forks Over Knives or, or Vegucated or Food Inc. or things like that. So we want them to, to um, be more in intelligent and informed about these things. You know, it's, it's interesting that people begin to change when you give them the information, but the fact is there's not very much change most of the time. Why? Because that's what everybody else is doing. They make, they make resolutions to make changes, but it's hard to follow through because that's what everybody else is doing. You know... The, the fast food restaurants are easy to access and, and everything is set up to make it easy to be a certain way and much more difficult to be a different way. And that's where the whole thing started back in Genesis. Cain left the presence of the Lord and went out and started a city where a group of people would feel comfortable with each other. 
God intended for man to continue to be involved in tilling the soil by the sweat of his brow. But the energy and effort and investment, not just of muscle, but of brain, and not just of muscle and brain, but of heart, the passion, the commitment, the desire to succeed, invested into that soil, would come back, pressed down, running over, using the same measuring tool that you invested in it. If we are willing to go into our garden or go into our farm and not just put half-hearted energies into it, there will be a return. And God, interestingly enough, you know, and this says so much about the kind of God that we serve. God wants to help us, and he's put tools in the soil, whether it's the energy and effort that we have to put that strengthens our health and intellect, but also these bacteria that we're coming in contact with improve our hope, improve our mood, improve our intelligence, and give us a fighting spirit to keep going. You know, we, we understand as Seventh-day Adventists that our church was raised up for reform. We weren't just raised up for reform, we were raised up to be reformed ourselves. All reform has to start with me. And, you know, in uh, which chapter of Fundamentals of Christian Education was it? 41, yes. Thank you. Page 318 in that chapter. Men tell you that the produce does not pay for the work done. Have you ever heard that? It is next to impossible, I'm quoting, more than 100 years ago. It is next to impossible to make ends meet. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever heard that? Men tell you that the produce does not pay for the work done. It is next to impossible to make ends meet. And the result is parents decide that the children shall not be farmers and they have not the courage and hope to educate them to till the soil. FE 3.18 We are not where we're supposed to be. It is not God's intention that this condition of things will exist. I know that because the very next paragraph says that. God has called on Adventist farmers not just to experience the benefits of farming for themselves. And there's a bunch of them. God has called us to answer that question that is keeping, and I'm quoting, thousands and tens of thousands from the soil. I don't want us 
to walk away from this convention just thinking that we can be out there and get a part of the benefit that there should be. We are to reform not just the not just the activity of farming, but the methods and the results. We're supposed to bring intelligence and education and science. We're supposed to not just not just do smarter work, we're supposed to look like we're intelligent. God wants there to be a reform that, that attracts people to the soil as a vocation. And if, and if this is the result, a lot of people who could be experiencing the benefits that come from the soil, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, aren't going to take it, aren't going to get it, because they say, I can't make it in farming. I know that, that um, probably none of us feel like we've arrived at that point of, um, of where we should be, but I want to challenge those of you who are farmers to follow the packed cup principle. Don't settle for what you have experienced don't settle for what you see other people experiencing. Don't be conformists and similar. Be real Garden of Eden farmers doing things the way that God intended for us to do so that we can actually honor God by inspiring and attracting other people to this amazing vocation. And for those of you, especially young people, who are wanting to choose a vocation, there are unlimited opportunities to make amazing breakthroughs. And, um, you know, back in the in, uh, 1930s and 40s, they were beginning to introduce new technologies to agriculture. After World War II, and it's a very interesting study, but after World War II, we changed the whole direction of agriculture and moved towards factory farms. And that's where industry and universities have collaborated to make bigger, better farms, implements, all this kind of technology. And those who want to start farming on a small scale are stuck with the same technologies that were used in the 1930s and 1940s and before. A lot of handwork, um, very simple tools, and you know, it's, it's, it's very intriguing to me to ask the question, what if that technology was adapted to small-scale farms? Would it change the way that farming was viewed and changed the outcome of farming. And those who are young farmers, there are a lot of opportunities. This is a, this is a untapped field with lots of opportunity, no pun intended. So I would inspire, I would in, seek to inspire everybody here to 
recognize the calling that Seventh-day Adventists have to be the head and not the tail. To lead a reform in agriculture so that we can experience the spiritual benefits, the moral benefits, the physical benefits, the mental and emotional benefits. God wants us to be happy in good health and, of course, saved in heaven where we can see the Garden of Eden the way that God really originally created it. And that's my prayer. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, you're an amazing God. The principles, the laws that you govern the universe by, the principle of giving and it shall be given unto you, of living your life to be all that you can be, to work hard, to give unreservedly, and to have the confidence that we will never run out because you'll give back to us more than we can put out. Lord, I want to thank you that you have designed the entire earth around that principle and that as we engage with it, that we will experience more and greater blessings on an ongoing basis. You want our lives to be happy. You want homes to be heavens on earth. You want children and parents, husbands and wives, to have wonderful relationships. You want us to worship you and to enjoy that worship. Lord, I want to thank you that You've given us the insight to know that we can experience far more of those blessings if we get into the country, if we work the soil. Lord, I want to ask that you will impress us with how we can do that, that you'll open doors for those of us who have not yet had the opportunity to, that you'll give us the burning desire to experience that, I want to ask that you will also give us the insight and wisdom that you have promised to make it successful and to not give up until we succeed. I want to ask that we can learn how to use agriculture as a tool for evangelism. We ask that you'll bless us tonight as we go to our rest. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.